Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seske. Today, we're joined by Matt Goldstein, co-founder of DealMaker. Matt, thanks so much for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Andrew. So before we kick off, let's talk about DealMaker and what it is. What does it mean to turn a simple capital raise into e-commerce? Yeah, DealMaker, first and foremost, is a technology company. Our platform is used by issuers. You know, think when I say issuers, think founders, you know, companies who are raising capital, who are looking to solve an age-old problem of how to engage with prospective investors and turn them into a source of capital. Using our software, an entrepreneur can start an online store and run a full e-commerce campaign, identify leads, create a relationship with a community, engage with that community to turn it into a source of capital and rely on the analytics, payment processing, and full set of functionalities you'd expect in a Shopify store you can leverage that for a capital raise campaign. So that, that's what we mean by turning raising capital into e-commerce. It means using the internet as your medium of sale and using the tools of e-commerce to identify an audience, engage with it, and turn that into a source of capital. So let's talk about how you identified the need for DealMaker and what actually catalyzed the entrepreneurial spirit in yourself to go start something new. You were a lawyer in your previous life. So now are there no efficiencies when it comes to the legal frameworks of startups? Because I'm sure between all of the different types of offerings, whether you're doing a Reg CF, Reg A, Reg A plus, and having all of these actually change a bit, probably over the last 10 to 20 years between the US and, and Canada, did you notice any major inefficiencies that catalyzed your you know, desire to go try to solve some with technology? Well, Andrew, that's what we lawyers would call a leading question. Uh, <laughs> you're right. So, so look, you know, Rebecca and I started this company back in, you know, back when we were still practicing law early kind of 20, 2017. We did, our, we did our beta in 2017. We started planning the company earlier in 2016. We were both partners at an international law firm. And in our daily practice, we dealt with technology companies and we came to understand that kind of lean startup mentality of how to solve a problem using technology by build, measure, learn. And we, you know, one day we sat down with a, with a whiteboard and we mapped out what the steps were in a capital markets transaction. And when I say capital markets transaction, I really just mean a company selling shares, right? And it's crazy. I mean, you have to identify their eligibility requirements when you're selling shares in the exempt markets. I can get into all that. It's like, you know, you've got to, you got public companies are listed on stock exchanges. They have a whole infrastructure to raise capital and it's automated and it's built on, you know, brokerage houses where you go into your Robinhood account and you press buy or sell and, you know, technology takes over. The private markets have nothing like that, just nothing. If you and your co-founders were raising capital, which, you know, you've done, so you can talk about then, it, then you're in the exempt markets. You're not a public company. You don't have access to that infrastructure. So you need a lawyer to draft a subscription agreement. The investors have to be eligible to buy exempt market securities, which means they need to be accredited in some way, or the offering needs to be qualified in a different way. They'll need to fill in the certificate. They'll need to send in the money. The money they send in has to match the order on the form. And there's a whole nine step, you know, 
kabuki dance to get to a closing, which just costs everybody time, money, and headaches. And so we looked at that and said, well, isn't raising capital really just sales, right? And that's something you and I have chatted about before. It's, isn't it just sales? It's how is it different? You're identifying somebody who, you know, likes what you have. You've got an ideal profile in mind and you want to eliminate any friction in between them liking what you have and, you know, you making the transaction. And so there's a playbook for this. It's called the internet. And if you think back to the early days of e-commerce, you had shoe stores who would go to like Accenture and custom build a website to sell shoes online. And along came Shopify and said, you don't have to do that anymore. We built a platform. You can license an online store and it has everything you need to run a campaign on the internet. And you have to find the buyers. That's the Shopify model. And that's our model as well. And at the end of the day, there's just some stuff you can't outsource or automate. If you're a founder, it's you that people are investing in. You have to be front and center of your store. But we built a technology platform that puts the issuer front and center, puts the founder front and center, and going out to raise capital then becomes an exercise in you know, e-commerce right? Identifying the prospects, engaging with them in a way that, you know, speaks to them, that they connect with using analytics to see who's likely to close, right? All of the tools of the modern kind of sales funnel management, the CRM, the prospecting, the elimination of friction in getting an order form signed, elimination of friction and taking payments online using credit card. We built all of that. And over time, it became you know, something that I think that's true whenever you introduce innovation into a market, there's a dynamic, right? The market responds to the innovation and it unlocks people's minds. So in the very early days, right, there were, you know, people who were raising capital from friends and family and from kind of pre-IPO rounds and following the same steps that traditional capital raising would follow, but over time, as people came to really understand, you know, you mentioned Reg A and Reg CS, these are major innovations in U.S. securities law that open up the ability of founders to raise capital online and to take payment by credit card and to market to the public at large and to run ads on the sides of buses if they want, right? Or to run, you know, ads on Google, Facebook, Instagram, right? To identify where audiences are online. It used to be you'd go and pitch in like a hotel lobby or a restaurant, right? And now you've got the internet at your fingertips to identify your community, to build that community and to engage with people in a way that makes it more likely for you to find them and for them to find you. And that's the story of Dealmaker. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. There might be some other leading questions here, but I we have a really sophisticated audience of CFOs. So I kind of want to get into maybe a philosophical conversation before hitting some of the major trends of why I think it's really important to have these fundraising conversations today and in this environment. Uh, one of the things that I keep a really close eye on has been the accreditation standard here in the US anyway. And I've listened to the conversations. They're, they're public conversations that the SEC has, and they take comments and notes from the outside. And 
I have to say I'm relatively unimpressed by some of the ideas. You know, it's go get an MBA, go get a JD, um, you know, maybe pass a test or so I'm really curious to see what ends up happening because there's a huge push of people who are highly sophisticated who I feel should likely, you know, start to break down the barriers of accreditation. But one of the critiques, and I'm sure you've heard this in earlier days of Dealmaker likely, but what would you respond to uh you know, in the earlier days, maybe less so now, all that was democratized was the risk of earlier stage investments as opposed to some of the higher quality opportunities. And that those who were trying to be innovative in their fundraise may have been excluded from institutional dollars. I don't think that's the case as we stand today. I think those looking for innovative raises have maybe a unique product that's more consumer oriented. But kind of curious on your take of that critique, because I think it's something in the back of uh, some CFOs' minds and the idea if they want to open up a raise to more people, it might be more onerous to manage uh, you know, a messier cap table. Does technology solve for some of that? And uh, how are you thinking about that from your vantage point, maybe even the last five years? Yeah. So I think that's there's a lot there. I mean, look, let's start with the traditional capital market, right? I don't think it's a secret. I don't think I'm casting aspersions to say the traditional capital market functions very conservatively, there's a, quite a select group, you know, who consistently get funded by VC and in institutional capital, and that group has certain attributes that don't include the, you know, the public at large. Like you can read the stats yourself. Two percent of VC funding go to, you know, the not, you know, non-traditional founders. Founders don't meet, you know, traditional demographic criteria. So I don't think that's a secret. I think the way the capital markets have functioned for a long time has been very exclusive and you know, over the last five years in particular, and if you go back to 2012, you have the Jobs Act, which yep. was an act of US Congress designed to say like, can we open up the capital markets to on one side, you know, non-accredited investors who want to participate and on the other side, founders who are blocked from accessing capital in traditional ways. And, you know, they, they're going to go out and create jobs. They're going to go out and bring innovation into the economy. Can we not let those two sides of a marketplace find each other by removing some of the barriers? And over time, I mean, 2012 is the, is the signing of the Jobs Act, but the, you know, the Reg CF rules and the Reg A rules, which, which for people who don't know, like when we say equity crowdfunding, we're talking about a bundle of regulations. And, and just without going too deep into the weeds, the bundle of regulations are designed to open up the sale of private market securities to non-accredited investors to make a purchase and to open up the marketing of some of these securities to the public at large. In the traditional capital markets, you can't go around. Um, you can't go around marketing to the public at large, and you can't go around making sale of exempt market securities to you know, basically non-accredited investors. And so the world we've moved into is a world where U.S. Congress has signaled, let's open things up for founders to access capital and let's open things up for, you know, ordinary people, people like me and you, you know, who have, you know, normal jobs and aren't hedge fund managers. Can they invest and make, you know, make a contribution to companies who are growing and get in on some of the, the real success stories? So, you know, you've seen the, the energy in Wall Street bets and in Reddit and yeah. you know, GameStop was a great example, but that's these are signals, right? right? That there's an opportunity to open up 
this market for, for capital, for a public that's hungry for it, and for founders who have been blocked in the traditional um, capital markets. All right. So you, you teed it up. So let's talk rise of retail. So one of my favorite quotes that one of the co-founders of Enthround always says is that to be a successful entrepreneur who raises outside capital, you need either people who are rationally in love with you or your product. However, in the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years, you and your products have almost avatars in you know the digital world where people can feel connected to you through social media for decades, where they feel like they're a part of your journey and love your product and can engage with you and your product or services in a really, really modern way. And that irrational love can take place in different areas. So I want to talk about um, you know, some of the industries where we think this is probably going to take place uh, and grow the fastest. And then I think it'd be really fun to talk about essentially where the marketplace will start to develop. Will it create um, you know, a piece of venture? I mean, it's really interesting to see public and private markets converge at the top end, right? You see Tiger Global coming down in pre-IPO venture. You see private equity coming into series A, which is, uh, you know, everyone is mixing and uh, merging fundraising rounds. It'll be really interesting to see if there's a critical mass that takes place in this small, medium-sized business that has equity crowdfunding, because a big, think a big piece of this will end up being not just the raise itself, but also liquidity at the end of these, uh, at the end of these journeys. So I think to hit that piece of liquidity and real returns, you know, the secondary markets might become more robust or that trickle down will continue into these businesses as people look to, you know, alternative capital. And I think uh, the alternative markets are a really promising place. I think people are, get, they get nervous with the volatility of our geopolitical scenarios. And, you know, maybe if they all had daily price graphs, people would be nervous about the private markets too. But Traditionally, I think people are looking to be more well diversified. So I know that's a lot to throw at you, but I think maybe just kicking off with you know, the overarching trends of people being able to find and establish a relationship with you and your services online is a trend that's not going away and becoming more prevalent than ever. So I would love to kind of hear your thoughts there and talk about some of the marketplaces you think are uh, yeah. consolidating and growing for the fastest. You know, I agree with you on on kind of the some of the major considerations that you outlined. Like like those are those are major considerations in how this market is evolving. But yeah, let's start with the first part. You know, you, you talk about irrational love. I would bring it back to the insight we started with, which is you know, raising capital is just sales. You know, Andrew, wouldn't you agree for any sales, any successful business development, you have to create an emotional connection. Somebody's going to oh, give you money. You're at, you know, that there, there has to be a lot of respect for the ask. You are asking someone to give you money. People, you know, earn their money and you are asking for them to entrust, entrust it to you, whether you're selling them a Tesla or you're selling them shares. I, I think, you know, go back to Guy Kawasaki, right? Delighting the customer. How is that any different in the sale of securities? Like the sale of securities is just sales. So creating an emotional connection is the foundation of a successful sale, in my opinion, right? And, and that's true if you're selling a Tesla and it's true if you're selling securities. So, you know, we've learned over the past 10 years, certainly, and the past, you know, two and something years of the, of the pandemic in a more accelerated way that you can still create emotional connections without being in person. I think that's not a controversial thing to say, right? I think, you know, the internet 
has opened our eyes to how people can find one another online. Like you can think of so many parallels of dating, sure. right? So building an emotional connection using the internet, building an emotional connection using, you know, web three, building an emotional connection using text message, right? The, the technology, when I, you know, I said earlier, the technology opens up and unlocks imagination, right? That's kind of one of the main things I mean. You can use technology to create a full community and that community can engage with each other, right? They can engage with you and your product. They can, you know, and if we, and if then we now move the analogy over to securities, you turn that community into a source of capital and think of a kind of a full cycle. And maybe at the end of that act of community building, that community is trading amongst itself. So we can get kind of more granular on what that looks like, but I, I certainly believe that uh, raising capital follows the same principles of sales. Building an emotional connection is fundamental. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, great content can get the conversation started. Like the first thing you need to do is get attention, you know, send a signal that cuts through the noise. And so your ads have to resonate, your, you know, your video has to resonate. You have to, you have to create a signal, you have to pierce the noise and get attention. And then once you, once you have that, again, you have to respect your ask. You're asking people for their time. You're asking people for their attention. You have to treat that with respect and you have to feed it. You have to engage with it. You have to give them something that creates value for them, right? You have to give them information that's valuable for them. You can't just say, oh, you know, we're so great. Like you can, but good luck with that. When you start to treat raising capital as a form of sales and use the internet and digital technologies to really, you know, leverage what sales have, right? In drip campaigns, in content creation, in marketing materials, in video, in embedding, you know, embedding kind of native ads. Like we can get deep into the weeds, but you can, you know, what you do is you you send a signal and, and it's like waving a flag and, you know, your friends see it. The people who identify with what you have to say, they find you. And so it's that two-way dialogue that the internet unlocks, uh, or I should just say digital technology, because you know we might talk about Web three, we might talk about mobile, but you yeah. know digital technology unlocks that ability to create that emotional connection. And then once you're building a community, there's a lot you can do with it, and it's yeah. you know mutual. One of the kind of unspoken things that uh, there's so many conversations about how Instagram and TikTok or YouTube can be really damaging. One of the things that really inspires me about this next generation of entrepreneurs is their ability to create content, to create followings, to communicate really effectively about what they're doing and building in public, I think establishes so much more trust. And I think that that constant flow of content kind of yeah. creates a really unique opportunity for this next generation of entrepreneurs to be really successful, yeah. you know, crowdfunders and uh, raise capital independently yeah. of some of the major institutions. So I want to talk a little bit about how DealMaker differentiates itself in terms of, we've talked about kind of the investor relationship with founders, but let's talk about the marketplace. And there are some marketplaces out there. Some are really diverse. Some have crypto offerings. Some have you know very just narrow windows. And it's always tricky to me to come across some of these platforms that you know promise help with fundraising. But I want to differentiate DealMaker a little bit about automating what can be automated. And I would love that we spent the most the first part of this conversation being very realistic about the relationship you have to have with investors to be successful fundraising. 
So I would love to hear about how you started DealMaker and how you basically differentiated yourself knowing all of this going in. It's very simple. I mean, our core principle is that is self-belief. You have to believe in yourself. These are your investors, right? Well, that's our message to the market. If you're going to go out and raise capital, that is your brand. That is your story. That is your value prop. Those are your investors. And so we put the founder or the issuer front and center. You can go on dealmaker.tech. You won't see anything to buy. Nobody can scroll and look for offerings. All offerings are, you know, what DealMaker is doing is it's powering the, you know, you call it a white labeled store. It's powering the offering for the issue. We did the Green Bay Packers common stock offering. I don't think you and I ever talked about that. but that No, was, I didn't know that. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's Green Bay Packers sells shares to the public periodically. Right. And, you know, when they started doing it, people had to mail subscription agreements Oh my gosh! I remember that my old um, yeah. my old firm had some of those shares in in their office hanging up. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know they had to mail it in, and they had to send a check, and then they would like come back in the mail. And, you know, hopefully they filled in the, the offering doc right, and maybe they read it, maybe they didn't. But it's a very good kind of paradigm to see how technology drives the industry forward. When November twenty twenty one, the Green Bay Packers did their common stock offering on our platform right? You go on, you buy from your mobile phone, you're buying direct from the Green Bay Packers. It's their brand. It's their store. Right. You know, we power the whole thing, but it isn't like that's in a marketplace where people are scrolling, looking for something to buy. It's a direct relationship between that issuer, that brand and its community. And that really kind of, you know, takes us back to how and why we started this company. We wanted to eliminate friction for, I mean, when we were lawyers, it was for our clients, Right. And, and, you know, what are the kind of hallmarks of the Google information age? Transparency and collaboration, right? Why was the capital markets in a place where, you know, the issuer raising capital had no real visibility, right? No transparency into where people were in a funnel, where people's minds were at. Have people engaged with the content? Have they read it? Have they clicked on it? Without the internet and without digital technology, you can't get into the heads of prospects. You have to just kind of wait. Like people will send in a subscription agreement or they won't. They'll send in money or they won't. You'll never know in real time kind of where the deal is at. You might have to call your lawyer and say like, what, how, has money come in, has not? And so from where we were sitting, you know, both Rebecca and I kind of took a look at this and said, well, what if we bring transparency and collaboration into the capital markets using technology? And as capital markets lawyers, Rebecca and I had deep subject matter expertise. We know the rules. We know them across, you know, a number of global jurisdictions, the major centers of capital formation, the US, Canada, UK, Australia. In our practice, we always thought globally and we always thought, you know, from a scalability perspective. And so, you know, we took that subject matter expertise and we built a software based on transparency and collaboration that powers an issuer's capital raise using technology. And from there, it's become you know, the market leader in large global online capital formation. We're very proud of the fact that basically all of the largest online exempt market uh, private placements have been done powered by our technology, right? Green Bay Packers included. Green Bay Packers hasn't even been the largest. So it comes back to you know, how technology can introduce a new way of thinking and how innovation can unlock imagination. And, 
you know, you can use the internet to turn a community into a source of capital. And every quarter, we see more and more kind of more developed brands, right, with communities who spend so much money building a community for their product. They've got newsletters, they've got Instagram, they've got ads continually going out. They can turn that community into a source of capital. And I think, you know, we're in the early, early days of kind of mainstream America, just kind of waking up to that realization. You don't have to treat a capital raise and a product marketing campaign as two totally different things. You can do both at the same That's time. That's a great point. Yeah. I love that point. I normally uh, have people, you know, hit the back 30 seconds button a few times when I really love a point. That would be a great one to go back to. I think that's a really important concept. I want to be sort of purposely inflammatory here and talk about whether or not you think the death of Silicon Valley is kind of arriving right now. And I want to be kind of, I want to talk about like the physical, physical location. I think founders who are nearby each other can really benefit from new communities. But those communities, I mean, I look at Andreessen and I see them say, you know, our headquarters is wherever. We're a completely distributed team now. That's just one example. But I think about uh, kind of the nature of venture in general. I mean, I think some people would argue, I don't know, the silicon and uh, semiconductor industry started at TI in Texas, not in Silicon Valley anyway. So it's been a marketing scheme this whole time or something kind of wild like that. But I'm curious to think about uh, or how you think about uh, whether or not these trends are going to basically disrupt not just the access to capital and who the key participants are, but whether or not we're headed into a purely distributed network that will kind of not rejoin each other. Do you think that this distribution of um, capital and participants is now just forever going to be globalized? I mean, I, I see that in the crypto community. That seems to be a really big kind of positive sentiment that they're pushing. But I, I do wonder if the need for a physical Silicon Valley or to be, you know, next to Stanford's campus, if that's going to be as relevant in the next 10 years, mostly because in the last 10 years, we've seen what VCs can do really well in scaling companies, but we haven't really participated with this technology available in really down markets. So we're going to, we're going to see what happens when the tides kind of fall out and discuss, you know, what is the best way for different businesses to be funded. You know, there are different incentives that come with different investment types. And the, I think you could easily argue that there are certain companies with major venture dollars that are scaling for growth's sake, as opposed to growing profitable businesses. And I think that's sort of become aspirational to a lot of young entrepreneurs. You know, if you're going to Y Combinator, if you're getting knighted by the VCs, there is some... Um, some pride behind that. And I think it'd be really interesting to see what basically happens in your opinion on how can you create similar environments uh, that are distributed, maybe even with better terms. And just really curious to hear what, what you think about that. Yeah. So look, the first thing I would say is the VC and institutional capital corner of the capital markets is actually pretty small, especially for young founders, they come out of Stanford or they come out of, you know, come out of technical schools or they don't go to university or, you know, and they think, okay, getting funded means I have to do X. And the profile of those founders and the profile of those companies end up looking a certain way, right? And, and it's a tiny corner of the capital markets as a whole, right? U.S. capital formation is in the teeth, right? It's trillions of dollars of capital formation and the 99 companies 
that uh, that Andreessen you know looks at and doesn't invest in versus the one it does. Those ninety nine companies still go out and raise. Right. Right. They may raise from their own communities. They may raise from you know the the scratching and clawing of the founders whose hustle and determination to chase every lead you know eventually gets them to where they're going. Where they may raise through investment banking, where they may raise through you know programs. But I think the area of the capital markets that the VCs reside. I, I don't think we need to think about it like in order to open up capital for more founders, we've got to take some out of this space. There's right. there's huge amounts of capital formation in the US that's untapped. And I think that's the primary area of growth for you know founders who are being a little bit more creative about how they raise founders who are going to build their own communities and raise that way. And I think, you know, if you want to talk about some of the terms that founders are able to set when they build their own community, 99 times out of 100 better terms than they would get from, you know, someone heavily negotiating to, to take a board seat or to take liquidation references. It's a, it's a different it's a different type of capital formation, right? It's focused on people who you know, feel emotionally connected, who understand the story, who want to be owners. I think Green Bay Packers is a great example. People want to be owners, right? It's not necessarily because they have a return on capital thesis that they're pursuing. A lot of them, a lot of them do. I'm not I'm talking about Green Bay, but I just mean that sentiment of, you know, I want to be a part owner of something that I care about because I have an emotional connection to it. And, you know, I'm happy to participate on terms that, you know, a whole bunch of people are participating in. One of our major success stories on the platform brought in 3,000 shareholders, right? They ran a a series of campaigns over 18 months, but they brought in, you know, one of them brought in 10,000 shareholders. So, you know, even though average purchase amount might be 3,000 bucks, might be 5,000 bucks, might be 1,500 bucks, depends on the campaign, it depends on what they're trying to do. But there's so much opportunity in the broader capital markets to identify people who get a story and you want to feel emotionally connected to a company. It's, you know, it's not necessarily, do I go VC or do I go here? It's, you know, sometimes it's both. Sometimes you have venture backed companies that are turning to the crowd because, you know, they have a growth growth trajectory that meets a VC thesis and the validation of having VC backing plus the validation of having, a widespread audience want to be owners, it works together really nicely. That's a really good point too. I think that often the, the way I even posited it was you've got one or the other. I think having a mix of types of investors can be really helpful along the journey of the entrepreneurial path for sure. I think actually starting with a good crowd is a ton of validation. So, I mean, and it's a loyalty metric. I think that will become more important as groups scale. You know, it's one thing to have active users. It's another if they're putting money into the firm itself. So I think it's totally. a huge, huge, very powerful metric. That's really interesting, right? There, there are these kind of, you know, sacred laws that VCs follow. They, they look at, you know, like active user count. That's, that yeah. wasn't an accident that you said that that's been a sacred law for a long time. You're looking at traction by measuring something, right? Isn't another way to measure traction by, you know, kind of conversion of community into sure. a source of capital, right? How many people believe so much in your product that they're willing to put money in? Right. Yeah. Talk about that sticky measurement, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I think so. Matt, what a cool conversation to have about what the future metrics that we're going to look at are going to, you know, are going to be. Well, 
I'm curious what's going on when uh, you think about investor education. I feel like the crowds have become so we talked about this a little bit with the rise of retail in uh, the public markets being able to use some momentum to kind of battle with the hedge funds during the pandemic that maybe there was a lot of people inside with maybe too much free time. However, I do think the education is far more widely available than it ever has been. And I'm curious because you've had so much time working with founders from you know, an, I mean, from the legal standpoint, but partially in education, I think a big piece of your role then was probably in discussing and educating on different offering types and, you know, what you were able to recommend that they do. And I'm kind of curious as the faces and knowledge has, I mean, everything has changed quite a bit. If you're seeing more sophisticated people come to your platform, basically, you know, year over year as the education and um, information becomes more democratized yeah. too. Absolutely. And, and then I think in many respects, you know, if you follow the literature on diffusion of innovation, right, and crossing yeah. the chasm, the literature shows a pretty consistent trend of, you know, innovation kind of starting in the out there regions, the penumbra, right, and, and, and migrating into the mainstream. And it's just a question of time and seeing success stories and, you know, word of mouth and, and a mindset shift. Right. When when you introduce something new, it does take some time. And there's a whole art and science of change management. Yeah. Education's a big piece of it. You know, we do webinars, we've got a lot of public facing knowledge on our knowledge hub. But but honestly, the best, the most impactful evangelists for the space are those founders who have successfully created communities online and turned those into a source of capital. And there's a multiplier effect because, you know. If one of those issuers does bring in 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 shareholders, you know, that's a whole community of people who might tell their friends about this experience they had. And if it was a positive experience, then, then you know, you're basically building my momentum one, one success study or one case study at a time. And what we see coming on the platform today versus, you know, the kind of business origination in the early days, to totally different, totally different profile. I mean, we've got New York Stock Exchange listed companies raising capital on the, on the on the platform. That wouldn't have happened in 2012. So you got to remember, five years ago, the space was zero, zero, maybe six years ago, early 2016. Online capital formation rounded to zero, right? And so, you know, on our platform alone, we've done I think it's 1.6 billion, right? Wow. Which for us is a lot, but for the U.S. capital markets, that's still typically very, very small. So we're in. You know, Rebecca likes to say we're in the second inning, to use yeah. a baseball analogy. We're, we're in the early, early days and, you know, education and success will fertilize the ecosystem further. And you get that, that snowball picking up momentum the longer it goes and the more, you know, success stories hit the market. Yeah, I want, I think the listeners should all take a moment and check out Dealmaker's website just from a educational standpoint, because I think that in the next, I mean, no one can predict exactly what's going to happen, but I think the markets are being shaken up quite a bit. So whether you're exploring venture debt or trying to avoid a venture down round or whatever your situation may be, I think right now is a really, really great time to double down on investor communications, to double down on you know innovative ways to continue to grow and to kind of showcase that you've got strength in your community. I think it's a great place to get started and a really uh, really rich resource. Uh, and uh, your, I saw your investor FAQ and your issuer FAQ. I think those are really important places to go just to educate yourself on what some people are doing to continue to grow their their firms. 
Matt, I want to talk a little bit about you for a second, because we have cruised through a ton of topics we could spend a few hours on. One thing I ask every podcast guest is, is there something that you feel is underestimated in the world today? And it doesn't have to be about dealmaker. It doesn't have to be about finance at all or fundraising. Uh, Just curious because of the breadth of CFOs we have on the show and their vantage points being so unique, just something that they feel underestimated in the world typically is uh, something we should all be thinking about, but maybe don't have the specific viewpoint. I've already kind of alluded to it, or I said it a little bit earlier, but but for me, philosophically, the notion of self-belief is really, really important. And, hmm. you know, as a, as, a, as a founder of this company and, and, and really, you know, my co-founder, Rebecca, is, I attribute enormous, I have enormous respect for how she's unlocked, you know, my own self-belief. And, but, you know, it, there's a consistency in our philosophy around self-belief, you know, our message to the, to the market around self-belief, you know, something we see underdeveloped in the world, self-belief, but, you know, raising capital is hard. Starting a company is hard. And the more people who believe in themselves, right, to create that emotional connection, to find a way to success, to, you know, raise their own capital, to start their own online store, we see that as having very, very positive multiplier effects on the economy, on innovation, and just on, you know, communities, like people who are empowered to believe in themselves and who, you know, feel supported in going out to, you know, do something themselves, raise their own capital, you know, find their own investors. I'm not saying you shouldn't rely on intermediaries or, you know, look for, people to help you along the way. Of course, that's part of it, but fundamentally believing in yourself and being supported in going out to, you know, to raise capital and to start a company and to grow a company is something that we really, really would love to impart to the world as our, you know, major contribution. Right. So I think one way, correct me if I'm wrong, but one way to think about fundraising is that every dollar is a vote of confidence and that vote of confidence can continue to empower that self-belief and dealmakers underpinning some of that process to make that more of a reality for more people. Yeah, well put. Awesome. Well, I love the fact that we got to cover so much today. I know we're already stretched for time, so I don't want to keep you too long, but how can people learn more about Dealmaker? How can they get in touch with you? And you know, what is the best way to interact if, uh, even if just an educational standpoint as a resource? You've hit all the notes. We do our best. We do webinars. We have content available on our site, dealmaker.tech. There is an intake process there too for people who are interested in learning more about raising capital. And we, we do put out consistent information about the space uh, through our newsletter. So dealmaker.tech is the place to start. And I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think it was a great conversation and I'm, I'm glad, to, uh, glad to have been here. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to t- circle back in a number of years as this space continues to develop. And that episode is going to be more fun as we're able to reflect back today. But thank you so much for joining the Modern CFO. And I'm looking forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. Have a great day.